Good evening, friends. Welcome to our evening service. We have been going through the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, there's one in front of you as well. Please take it out. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Now we're reading verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Follow along with me as I read from the word of our Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray before we begin. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are in awe of the work that you can do, Father. So we are humbled that we can open your word, Father, and we we trust, Lord, that you will save and sanctify uh, people here in our church, Father. So we look to you for guidance. We look to you for help. Help us understand you and know you more through your word. Pray to Son in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am a big fan of sports. I love going to watch games live. I love participating in sports, even though I'm not really that good. I'm not really that athletic. And I want you, friends, to remember a time where you were first learning a sport, first learning a hobby, whatever, any skills when you were a kid. When you were first learning that activity, you were green. You knew nothing. You knew nothing at all. There are no expectations of you when you are first learning a sport. For example, no one is going to expect you to be an amazing three-point shooter in basketball if you've never played basketball before. No one will expect you to hit a bunch of home runs if you've never even held a baseball bat before. No one will expect you to play play, uh, Beethoven if you've never touched a piano. At the elementary level of any hobby, you must first teach the fundamentals of said hobby. Then the goal afterwards is to build upon that foundation that you learned. If it's basketball, you need to first know how to hold the basketball. Then you need to know how to dribble the basketball. And then you can shoot the basketball. If it's baseball, you need to know how to hold the bat and how to properly stand in front of the baseball mound before you can swing the bat, before you can even get a hit, before you can even get a home run. The most important thing is to first learn the basics. And then the basics will shape uh, how you play the game, how you play that hobby, that sport, that music uh, instrument for the rest of your life. Basics are important. So here in Acts chapter 2, we are seeing something very similar. A group of people just saved 3,000 people. Everything is new to them. They are green. This is a new experience for them. Wouldn't serve them well right now to teach them to establish elders right now. Wouldn't serve them well to teach them to establish deacons right now. They aren't there yet. They are new. They are green. If you read the epistles, if you continue reading the book of Acts, eventually they're going to get to that point. They're going to go deeper into what the church looks like. But they aren't there yet. Chapter 2 is just the basics. It's the spiritual milk before they can get to the spiritual full course meal. It's just the foundation that is going to be built upon as we continue reading the New Testament. The basics will shape the church until we see Christ one day when he returns. 
So to recap our evening services, we have been in the book of Acts. As we learned last month, our dear brother Brent preached on Pentecost. We learned that Peter was preaching an amazing sermon to a hostile crowd. And I, I want you to imagine the tension in the room. Do you ever sit in for a sermon and you think like, wow, this, this sermon is, is really speaking to me. The speaker is really kind of coming at me and kind of pointing out things in, in my life. Well, that is exactly what is happening in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching to 3,000 people. As he is preaching, he's confronting the people about the sins that they have committed. Uh, look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, now to the crowd, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the Jesus that you killed. Sermon isn't necessarily a a seeker-friendly sermon. Peter isn't playing games. Peter is just attacking them and pouncing on them, hitting them with a bunch of facts throughout his entire sermon. He is confronting them for killing the person that he followed for three years. Then something miraculous happens. After the gospel is preached, 3,000 souls come to salvation. People from all around the world, they all speak different languages. They each have different upbringings. In the span of one sermon, their lives are just totally, totally changed. Look with me in verses 37 to 38 of chapter 2. Now when they heard, that they were, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is a conviction. They were cut to the heart. These guys did not ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They didn't sink in their shame. They didn't sink in their conviction. They brought that shame, they brought that conviction through the, to the cross of Christ. And they repented of their sins and they believed and the Lord saved them that very day. And that same gospel, that very gospel that we read in Acts chapter 2, has the power to still save this very day. And that gospel that we heard in Acts chapter 2 is what brings us, me and you, together here. This was not just some random event that happened 2,000 years ago. The gospel is still being spread today through the work of the church. We are here because we were once convicted of our sins. We were once cut to the heart. And we put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you remember last month, Brent uh, mentioned that there is a temptation to think that God was working differently 2,000 years ago. And that couldn't, and he mentioned last, last month as well, that couldn't be further from the truth. God is still working. The gospel still stands to save people today. And if you are here today and you are not a Christian, uh, we are so happy you are here. And I want you specifically to know that the gospel stands to save you today. If you have any questions about who Jesus is, about Christianity, please do not leave this evening without speaking to someone about the gospel and about salvation. Today is a day of salvation. If you repent and believe and turn away from your sins and run towards Jesus. And for 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 was their day of salvation. I want you to remember that Christianity by this point, before Acts 2, is relatively small. Yes, people are getting saved. People are coming to the faith. It is very slow and steady growth. For the most part, it's very manageable for something that only 12 men are running. And then... One day, one sermon, 3,000 people get saved. And now those 12 men have to lead another 3,000 people. 
And their jobs right now is to establish a culture in this community. Okay, yes, they're saved, but now what? What's next? Their goal, the apostles' goal, is not simply to gain a bunch of numbers. Honestly, the apostles could have called it a day. 3,000 souls getting saved. Check. They've done enough. Let me go to the next town. I did my best. They could have been known as the best preacher in the area. They could have received their own glory. But what is the primary purpose of the apostles? What are they striving to do? And Matthew 28 kind of gives us that answer and gives us what the apostles do, what their mission is, and why they do it. Matthew 28, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this great commission, it shows us that it is not simply about just getting people saved. They are commanded and sent by Jesus to teach others to observe everything that was commanded by Christ. So everything Jesus taught them, they will now pass that same knowledge down to the church. It's not about signing a bunch of salvation cards and calling it a day. They need to establish the culture, and they start with the basics. And that brings us to our text this evening. There is an establishment of a community, the church, a community that has never been seen before, before Acts chapter 2. They are developing the faith of people who a few days ago were chanting at the death of Jesus. And now through the work of the Spirit, they have been changed And now we are going to see the aftermath of what happens next, what is supposed to happen next after salvation. As we read and as we spend our time in Acts chapter 2 today, you're going to notice that there's nothing out of the ordinary happening here. Everything is simple. Nothing is fancy. Even though it's mundane, the apostles obviously did something right because the church has faced endless persecutions, endless trials, endless false teachings, you name it, yet the church is still standing today. There is an eternal importance to the very things that we do together when we meet in church, when we worship together. These are the very things that we often uh, undermine in our services, but there is spiritual value behind them. So friends, the title of our sermon today is Church for Dummies, Church for Dummies. And if you're taking notes, we have three points for our time tonight. Point number one is the pulpit drives the church. Point number two is the response of the church. Point number three is the faithfulness of the church. Point number one, the pulpit drives the church. Follow along with me, chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's one verse here. There's so much here. We can spend 40 minutes on teaching, 40 minutes on fellowship, 40 minutes on the breaking of bread, 40 minutes on on prayer. We will not be able to do each aspect of verse 42 justice. What we have here in verse 42 are a bunch of new Christians, and their only knowledge of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And now they want to know Jesus more. They don't want to stop there. They want to constantly know him more. And that should be the desire for us today. The desire of every Christian in this room. 
We learned about knowing Jesus more in our sermon this morning. We sang about knowing Jesus more in our worship service this morning. Friends, we should strive to know Jesus more. Throughout the entire earthly ministry of Jesus, the apostles were under the greatest teacher ever. They were under the teaching of Jesus Christ for three years. They had a front row seat and the ability to know Jesus almost better than any other man in the world. However, under the ministry of Christ, they didn't really understand anything. Nothing really made sense to them. Many things went over their heads, and there are many moments throughout the gospel where we're like, we're thinking, did these guys even listen to a single word that Jesus said? In the book of John, Jesus acknowledges that they most likely didn't really understand much that, of what Jesus was saying. So in, in John chapter 14, we're reading verses 24 to 26. It says this, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still here with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and here is where it's important, and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. They don't know. Many things went over their head. A lot of things don't make sense. But when the Spirit comes, it'll almost come together. The pieces of the puzzle will complete. Then we get to Acts, and we kind of see these verses kind of come to completion. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They have power. Again, things are making sense. It makes so much sense. They have so much authority now that 1 Corinthians 14, 37 says that the things that they are writing are very commands of the Lord. The former students have now become the teachers. The apostles were entrusted to teach, to preach the gospel, to spread the gospel throughout the nations. We know that they are commanded by Christ himself to make disciples. Don't get confused. Their teaching is not just simply about being good public speakers. They have been entrusted with something very important. They have been entrusted with the gospel of Christ. And they are proclaiming the very commands of the Lord. We have written documents from these apostles. And these documents make up what is our Bible today. So in as much as our teaching in our church is faithful to the scriptures, we are in the same way devoted to the apostles' teaching. And we are a product of the foundation that was set 2,000 years ago. We are simply repeating the process. So pastors, teachers, the goal for us is essentially to be unoriginal. So, and I, I want to caution you, we need to be very careful of new teachings that arise. New teachings as if there's been something wrong with 2,000 years of church history. And then in 2022, after such a long time, the church finally gets it right. That couldn't be further from the truth, friends. We don't have our own teachings. Our teachings come from the Bible, come from the apostles' teaching. And now maybe you're a little lost right now. You're probably thinking, okay, Hector, I get what you mean. Yes, I don't disagree. But why emphasize the pulpit? Why emphasize teaching and preaching? There's so much here in this verse, verse 42. It speaks about other aspects of worship. It speaks about other aspects of lifestyle. Why not emphasize the different aspects of verse 42? Why just the teaching? And I am glad you asked that question. I'm emphasizing teaching so much because everything, everything must be taught 
before it can be done. The pulpit drives the church. If you're a parent here, you probably know from firsthand experience, you know you cannot expect your child to do something or act in a certain way without first teaching them what your expectations of them are. You cannot shoot a basketball without being first taught the fundamentals of the sport. So friends, the reality is the church goes in whatever direction the pulpit goes, whatever direction the teaching in that church goes. Does it matter what kind of programs are in the church? Maybe uh, other ministries that are thriving in the church? If the pulpit is bad, if the teaching is bad, eventually the church will follow in that direction. That is why doctrine is so important. That is why there are countless books of the Bible devoted to protecting doctrine. I want you to remember, if you're a believer here, when you first got saved, how important those first few months of salvation were. To have a a brother and sister come side by side with you, discipling you, training you, teaching you how to pray, teaching you how to study the word. The basics are important. The basics that you learned when you first were saved are the very things that shaped your spiritual life today. Here in Acts, the very same thing. These are very formative years for the new believers, and the apostles want to cover every single base. And yes, teaching is great. Teaching is important. But if you have a people that are not willing to learn, it feels as though you are you're pulling teeth at sometimes. And it's not like that here in Acts chapter 2. They have a deep and intense desire to know Jesus more. We see that they are devoted to teaching. That they are devoted to every act of corporate worship. They are hungry to know more. They are like a sponge soaking in all of this new information. Like we sang this morning, now my heart's desire is to know you more. To be found in you and known as yours. They are faithful students to the apostles' teaching, hence their devotion. And teaching is the root of these community-based activities. Everything that we will discuss throughout our sermon, and specifically in this point, uh, must first be taught. The pulpit drives the church. Like, we see that they have fellowship with each other. How do they have fellowship with each other? They essentially don't really know each other. They all just met. They all just got saved. And the natural human inclination is to be a selfish person. But that is not the fellowship that we see in Acts 42 to 47. We see a, a fellowship that is against selfish ambition. It's safe to assume that the apostles had to establish the culture of fellowship. And that's primarily done through teaching, through preaching. Whether it be sermons, uh, teaching, or teaching via example with their lives, whatever it was, in the early days of this church, these people knew nothing about each other, knew nothing about Jesus, but yet, in the early days, there was a culture of fellowship. Fellowship is meant to be in the Christian life. They all worship the same God. That is the base of their unity. Throughout each of the epistles in the New Testament, you will see commands to love one another, to serve one another, to show hospitality to each other, to encourage each other. The one another's are used 100 times in 94 verses. This is something that is mentioned in our Bible so much. Therefore, it's probably important. And they devoted themselves to this fellowship. This kind of fellowship did not exist before in their lives. This kind of fellowship did not exist before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. 
The Greek word used here is koinonia, and it's not even found in any of the Gospels. This is the very first time we hear the word fellowship in the New Testament. And fellowship, as we will continue reading throughout the verses, fellowship comes at a price. Fellowship goes in direct contrast of selfish ambition. You go from living for yourself to now you're living for other people. You're putting others above yourself. And we'll speak more about that in our second point. But moving on, we also see that they are devoted to breaking of bread and to the prayers. In 1 Corinthians, we are given a detailed explanation for why and how we should partake in the Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a family meal in which we partake in bread and with wine in remembrance of Jesus. Their salvation is so fresh to them that they partake in remembrance with joy and devotion. They have a fire. that first, When you first get saved, that fire that you have, they have that. Also devoted to prayer. The apostles were, were taught how to pray from Jesus himself. They probably didn't know how to pray before. They are new Christians. You most likely, when you learn how to pray, you prayed just like maybe one of your spiritual mentors or someone that discipled you. You pray just like how they pray. Everything had to be taught first before it can be done. The pulpit drives the church. The same way they were taught, friends, is the same way that we were taught through the teaching of the apostles. And we try our best in this church to follow the teaching of the apostles. And I want to, I want to remind you as well, this is not something done individually. In our text today, in Acts chapter 2, this is all done in a corporate setting, in the church gathering. And this is all of the things that we do on a Sunday. All of these things hold weight. Our singing, us reciting creeds Sunday morning, uh, to us praying together to the sermon, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, the fellowship that we have afterwards, all of those things have weight and spiritual significance. And teaching is so important for all of that because our theology shapes our doxology. So in other words, what we know about God, what we know about him and his word, shapes how we worship God. If you weren't taught to pray correctly, or if you weren't taught the importance of the Lord's Supper, or if you weren't taught how to love one another, that correlates with your worship, that correlates with your lifestyle. This is important because we know God cares how we worship. God deserves the glory. We aren't just having worship service blindly and just kind of hoping we do the right thing. No, we can find where God commands us to worship. God cares how we worship. We do not make the rules on our own. And teaching the Bible shapes our worship and it shapes our lifestyle. And that is why we need to protect our doctrine all the more. There's a correlation with, with sound doctrine and godly living. But then there's also a correlation with bad doctrine and ungodly living. The pulpit drives the church. The church goes in whatever direction the pulpit goes. So how, how do we ensure that our teaching is sound? Uh, by the center of our teaching being the gospel, the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners. Anything that poses a threat to the gospel is false teaching. So I want you friends to know that the gospel is enough. How do we ensure that our teaching is sound and gospel-centered? We do not turn away from the foundational teachings of the apostles. The gospel is what shapes our teaching. The gospel shapes our life. 
the gospel shapes our worship. And we will see more of that as we continue reading, that the gospel is of first importance. So, so church, I encourage you to devote yourself, to be hungry for the word, to ask questions, to ask leadership why we do certain things. Why do we have corporate prayer? Why do we recite creeds? Why do we sing together? And there are all biblical significant reasons as to why we do that. When you do something for a few years, you've been a Christian for a while, you tend to kind of go on cruise control. You come to church on Sunday. It's the same thing every week. We're singing a few songs. We're having a call to worship. We're hearing a, 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 a sermon on any text. But friends, let's not undermine that or go on cruise control. There are uh, spiritual realities behind our worship meeting, and it is significant. Let us not overlook these things. Pray that we can have a restored joy in our salvation and a restored joy in our devotion to God, especially when we meet together corporately. So that is our first point. The pulpit drives the church. Point two, the response of the church. Point two, the response of the church. Follow along with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 43 to 45. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There is something very beautiful that is happening here. There is something very special that is happening here. First off, there is, there is no better feeling, friends, than to see God working before your very eyes. And these friends in Acts chapter 2, these believers in Acts chapter 2, they saw God working and awe just came upon their souls. And friends, you should have this same response when you look out into our church, when you look around to the members you are covenanted with, and you will see God working before your very eyes. I look out into this room. I see many of you who now have been here for maybe over a year and a half, maybe, maybe two years. Uh, you came in as a brand new believer. Some of you came in as non-believers. Then in the span of two years, in seeing God work, in seeing the pulpit drive our church from our pastor teaching faithfully, God has grown many of you. God has saved many of you here. Friends, before our very eyes, God has been working. So it is such a beautiful thing to sit through testimonies in our membership meetings. It is such a beautiful thing to see people get baptized in this church, to sing to God, be the glory during our services. This is God at work. It is also beautiful to see the gospel at work and how we interact with each other. Whether you've been a member here for 20 years or you've been coming for less than two years, it's always amazing to see people come together who from looking at the outside have nothing in common, but they meet together for coffee, for lunch. They pray together. They read a book together. Friends, that is so, so encouraging. Something special happens when we fellowship together with our covenanted church members. Verse 44 says, all who believed. So basically everyone who was a Christian, they were together. They had all things in common. I see this as, as people doing life together, but there is also like such a concern for one another, such a love for one another, such a readiness to help one another. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all and focus here as any had need, as any had need. 
Now, I want to pause here for a little bit before we go deeper into this verse. There's one thing that I want to clarify, and I want to be very careful with how we address this, uh, because this, this verse has never really been done justice. There's been a lot of distractions that have come with this verse, and it kind of robs us on how we understand this text and how we apply this text. There are some that would read a verse like this, and they will use it to correlate the Bible with uh, different types of political ideologies. Some will use verses like this and say that the church is pro-communism, and that the mission of the church, and that the mission of the apostles is to form a state like this. Friends, I want to caution you that that couldn't be further from the truth, because we know from Matthew 28, the primary purpose and mission of the apostles and also the mission of the church is to preach the gospel and to make disciples. I mention this because I don't want there to be any confusion when we look at a verse like this. And to clarify, friends, I want to, I want to clarify this point. There is a freedom to have your own views on the role of government. You, know, you are free in Christ to come to any conclusions that you would like. But I just want to caution you in this way. Be very careful of adding a mission to the church and correlating church and a political agenda or political ideology. Be very careful, especially of those that use the pulpit, that use their teaching to promote Christianity and any sort of political ideology. Be very careful of any church that does not emphasize the gospel as first importance. And I encourage you, friends, be very careful about the things you are passionate about. Be very careful at putting something above or equal to the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. There is nothing missing to the gospel. There's not a missing piece that we can come up with to fulfill the missing link in the Bible. Friends, our last point rings here. The pulpit drives the church. We need to protect the pulpit. And that should be the center of our worship. The gospel should be the center of our worship. The gospel is what changes lives. The gospel is what addresses any and all brokenness in our world caused by sin through the one who conquers sin in Jesus Christ. Once that focus is shifted off Jesus and shifted off the cross of Christ, shifted off the gospel, and then it goes into any sort of man-made ideas, friends, it's a slippery slope. It's a very dangerous slippery slope. So I encourage you to be careful what you are passionate about. And Paul mentions this very thing to Timothy and exhorts Timothy to stop spending his time on worthless ideas. He's essentially telling him, Timothy, be very careful what you are passionate about. First Timothy 6.20 says, O Timothy, guard the great deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And what was entrusted onto Timothy, the gospel was the very thing entrusted onto Timothy. So our priorities, our passions, our desires, especially in the church, especially in the pulpit, should strictly be the gospel of Christ. And that gospel is what shapes our teaching. That gospel is what shapes our lifestyle. That gospel is what shapes the local church. And when you disregard that great deposit entrusted It not only affects teaching, it affects lifestyle. It affects how you interact with others in the church. If you look at the end of verse 45, it says this, they gave as any had need. 
can't tell you the amount of people that I've met that have this quote-unquote knowledge. They know every single theology, every single teaching. They have very strong viewpoints and they're passionate about a lot of things. And then these very people know nothing about the needs of the church. We don't know how they're doing spiritually because they have all the answers to every single question. So friends, again, I want to caution you to be careful what you're passionate about and what you talk about and how you interact with people in church. So I ask the question, are your conversations edifying in the church? Do you leave conversations uplifted and encouraged? Do you see the one another's lived out in your conversations, in your interactions with the church? Or does something else take priorities in your interactions with the saints? Do you know the needs of the church? Or are you focused primarily on the irreverent and foolish controversies? In the church in Acts chapter 2, there definitely were many needs. People were coming to Jerusalem and they came from a bunch of different places. And then once they all got saved, they stayed in Jerusalem. So they left their homes. They left their jobs. They had nothing. And people who lived in Jerusalem had homes, had resources, and they were opening those homes and, and, uh, and assisting in, in, in helping out, giving people those resources that they've built up. So they've opened their homes. They've, they've, they've brought people home for, for dinner. They assisted in any way that they could to those who were outsiders. For those that left everything they knew, who left their homes, who left their jobs to follow Jesus. So some of the members in this church, they saw a need and they voluntarily stepped up to help out those who were, and, and, and they subjected all of their possessions for the good of the church, not for the good of themselves. The church has many needs, friends. I'm reminded of a bunch of different examples. I know a brother who opened his home to a family whose house burned down. No friends and brothers and sisters that offer rides to saints in need, whether they need a ride to and from appointments, to and from fellowship events, they have opened themselves to assist in that need. I've seen saints help members pay months of other members' rent when they have been struggling. In our church, we see uh, saints providing meals to new parents. We see saints helping brothers and sisters move. Friends, I don't want you to think that this is just monetary needs, that they are just giving out money, just giving money to everyone who needed money. Yes, fellowship costs a price, but the church has a diversity of needs. The church has many needs. Uh, Nathan, in Bible study, mentioned a few weeks back uh, that the most encouraging thing that he hears when speaking to new members is that when they're asked what ministries they want to serve in, they say, wherever there is a need wherever there is a need. So whether it be children's church, whether it be projection or sound, wherever there is a need, the most encouraging thing Nathan hears from new members is that they want to serve where they are needed. There are spiritual needs. There are emotional needs in the church. There are ministry needs in the church. There are all types of needs. And we need to be there for each other to meet those needs. How do we begin tackling the needs of the church. This requires for you to know the church and to know the members in the church. This requires us to be vulnerable with each other. This requires us to be open with each other. Scripture commands us to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. How are you able to weep with someone if you do not know their needs, if you don't know their struggles? 
if you aren't actively a part of their lives. But also, and from the other side, how are you able to uh, receive help if you close yourself off? I wonder how many people here um, feel lonely, feel broken, feel discouraged, feel weak, that are struggling. You can't get through those things alone. We need each other. And one of the biggest lies from Satan is that the church would never understand what you were going through, any issues you were going through. That you are better on your own. That couldn't be further from the, tru- from the truth. Because how the church survives, how the church grows, how the gospel message is spread is only in the context of community. When you get saved, you should be in a localized community of believers. And, and look, I get it. You're probably not going to know the needs of every single member in your church. People live in different areas. Uh, people have different jobs throughout the day. Some people have families. Some people are single. I get that. The bigger the church, the harder it is. But if fellowship is not the culture of the church, then people will get lost in the shuffle. The needs of the church will get lost in the shuffle. But when fellowship is a culture, that is when the church rises and steps up to help those out of the kindness of their heart. And the local church today has many needs, has many prayers that need to be answered, encouragement that's needed. And the means that God uses to fulfill those requests that he uses brothers and sisters like you to help encourage the saints that are weak, that are struggling, and to fulfill the needs of the church. So I have a question for you. Whether you're a member here at First Baptist Church or a different church, do you have a concern for the people you are covenanted with? Do you offer to help with readiness at a moment's notice for the church? Again, I get you'll not know everyone, But do you have someone that is a brother and sister in Christ that you can be vulnerable with, that you can open up with, that you can tell them your struggles to, that you can be open with, someone that you can share your burdens with? If not, then I'd be worried, friends. You cannot ride solo the Christian walk. Reminded once of a story of a family that was going through some financial issues and, uh, they went over a different family's house and they opened up about how those financial struggles were really affecting uh, their marriage. And it, was, it led to some marital struggles. Um, and the family they visited, they didn't give them any money. The family didn't have any, any money to give, but they just prayed with them. They understood what they were going through. And the brother told me that he left so encouraged and so refreshed after that moment. There are many needs We each have different gifts. We each have different resources. And we should use whatever we have, whatever service we have, for the benefit of those around us in our church or in our community. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Our prayer is that in light of the gifts that God has given us, that we use it to extend grace and fulfill the needs of the church for the glory of God, that we do nothing out of selfish ambition, but that we consider others better than ourselves. Let us respond to the work of salvation that God has done in us, that we have the mind in Christ, that just like Christ in humility, humility, he put others above himself. We saw point one, the pulpit drives the church. Point two, the faithfulness, uh, the, the response of the church. And now point number three, the faithfulness of the church. 
the faithfulness of the church. Read with me verse 46 to 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This wasn't just some spiritual high. This wasn't, t- this wasn't just like a one-time moment. These believers are now walking the walk. They are committed to their faith. They are committed to Christianity. And friends, as we look at the rise of Christianity in America, there are many questions that arise when it comes to church. Some of the main questions that come up about church today is, how do we get more people to come to church? What works? What is effective in growing churches? And there are thousands, thousands of resources. There are thousands of books on church planting, on church revitalization, companies that focus on growing the church, but then they use seeker-sensitive means to uh, try to assist and help the church. These things include maybe changing the name of your church, change the layout of your church, and then your church will grow, and then a complete undermining of the gospel and a complete undermining of what works, a complete, a complete undermining of what we see in Acts chapter 2 of simplicity and faithfulness. We know from scripture only one thing works, and that one thing is to be faithful. The church in Acts was faithful in attending the worship services that were being done in the temple. They were opening their homes, and they were faithful at opening their homes and hosting members with meals. They were faithful in their thankfulness for all that God has been doing and providing them with. And simply by them just being faithful, God added to their number day by day. So what works? What grows the church, friends? Faithfulness works. Faithfulness grows the church. And there's, there's nothing out of the ordinary happening here. There is a simplicity behind each of this. There is a simplicity, but there is a weight behind this simplicity. God gives us ordinary means of grace to grow his kingdom. Church in the simplest form is teaching, preaching, fellowship, prayer, and the church ordinances. This is all we are commanded to be faithful to. And then when we stray away from these things, it's because we lose trust in God and think that what God has told us is not enough. That my church is not growing when I do this. You get impatient and you try to, you know, invent different ideas for yourself. But friends, I, I encourage you that we need to be faithful to what God has told us to be faithful to. We need to be faithful to teaching because Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we need to preach and teach and be faithful to that. We need to be faithful to each other because the words of Jesus says that our relationships with each other acts as a testimony to the world. He says in John thirteen thirty five, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to be faithful to praying because it shows that there is no dependence on us or anything that we can do but only on the power of God. So we go to him to prayer because we are weak and he is strong. We plant seeds, he grows. So when we gather, let's not mess with new ideas or compromise foundational truths that we learn today. David Strand says, in faith, let us read the word, 
Let us be faithful to the word. Let us preach the word and be faithful to the word. Let us pray the word and be faithful to the word. Sing the word and be faithful to singing. See, taste, and touch the word. And as we do, surely the grace promised in the word will be ours to the glory of God. So friends, as I wrap up this point, I want to encourage you to be faithful. When you evangelize, never compromise the gospel, but be faithful in planting seeds, knowing that God is the one that causes growth. And friends, I want to encourage you to be faithful to the foundations that you have set, because God has been faithful in the foundation that he has set in you. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So friends, do not abandon any foundation that you have set. Maybe you are discipling someone and investing in someone and you're getting really discouraged. Friends, I encourage you to press on and continue to labor for the good of the church. God only expects and wants us to be faithful. Maybe you're a parent and you've been preaching the gospel to your kids, you've been doing family worship with your kids, but the Lord isn't saving them, and you get impatient, and you think you have to do something different, I encourage you to continue to strive to be faithful in raising your children. You are establishing those seeds. God will grow it, and we pray that God will save your children. So be faithful, parents. The apostles never abandoned any foundation that they set. They were faithful to the church throughout every single situation. For example, things seem really good in Acts chapter 2. Uh, There there are great reasons to be encouraged in chapter 2 from seeing that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, from seeing the beautiful acts of grace that God has done in their life, to seeing the fellowship that they have with each other. But as you continue reading, there are many things that come up that can cause discouragement. In a few chapters, in a few, maybe a month or two, we're going to discuss some of the serious sin issues that come up within this church community. But the apostles don't simply abandon the church after that. They press on. As you continue reading Acts, you will see endless persecutions, endless trials, endless suffering. They don't abandon the church when it gets hard. They remain faithful. They press on. They continue planting seeds that God has commanded them to plant. Throughout all of the epistles, you will see serious sin issues, serious doctrine issues, serious false teaching issues. Yet in love, the apostles helped turn the church in the right direction. They were faithful. They did not abandon the church. In that very same way, I encourage you, First Baptist Church, to remain faithful. Faithfulness is what works. Faithfulness in the ordinary means of grace is how God's church grows. So friends, as we wrap up our time together, we saw the establishment of the first church. This was a lesson in church history, a lesson in the ordinary means of grace, that though very ordinary, God still acts in very special ways through those ordinary means. We learned about the beauties of fellowship. Um, Friends, First Baptist Church members, I encourage you to look around at the people you are sitting with. These are the people who you can turn to for anything and everything. Be faithful to them and be faithful to God in our worship in him. The pulpit drives the church. We saw the response of the church. We saw the faithfulness of the church. Friends, I want to leave you with one application point. 
partake in shared worship. Our application point is partake in shared worship. There is something very special that happens when a group of Christians come and meet together. Now, I'm not going to pin personal worship and corporate worship against each other and say that either one is better than the other and they're at war with each other. I'm not going to tell you that that you should strive for just corporate worship or just strive for personal worship. I think scripture speaks about both of those uh, beautiful things. uh, And I think scripture speaks about it in a very balanced perspective. But our text today only speaks about corporate worship in a shared setting. Something special happens when we meet. Yes, very ordinary. Yes, very basic. Yes, very, very simple. But it's special because when we meet together, it points us in a, to a heavenly reality. Our meeting together is the closest thing that we will get to heaven. It's the closest picture of heaven that we will get. So today we have the opportunity to share in worship together, to get a heavenly feel Directly after, we will have a time of singing together. Singing is not something that we just do individually. Singing is not something we do to experience uh, music and to hear the speakers blare extremely loud. As Harry said, we sing together so that we can hear our voices. And the priority when we sing together is the church singing, and that's it. No instrument, no uh, sound, technical issues. The priority is singing So I invite you to sing when we wrap our time up. I also invite you to share in worship with us in Sunday morning. So whether you've been coming to church for, for one week, for five years, for 20 years, we tend to become jaded towards the ordinary means of grace in our worship. We can zone out in our worship service, whether, whether it be in the songs, in the prayers, in reciting creeds. We overlook the Lord's Supper sometimes. It's because we know routine and we get used to it and we forget the value and weight behind all of those. So I hope by seeing the church in its infancy in Acts chapter 2 that it helps develop a renewed love and affection for singing, for teaching, for praying together, and for fellowship. That leads me to the next. I invite you to fellowship. We will have a meal together directly after this. We have so much, so many moments to apply Acts chapter 2, to apply the infant church, to apply the ordinary means of grace. This is an opportunity for us to partake in the fellowship that we spoke about earlier today. You have the moments and the opportunity to know the needs of the church. Through conversation, you'll know how we can pray for one another, how we can encourage one another, how we can bear each other's burdens. I pray that we will be passionate about the gospel, and I pray that we be passionate about each other, that we put our interests, the interests of others above our very own. I pray that we will be all in for our church and all in for the community at First Baptist Church, friends. So let us close in prayer and sing our final song. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you you save sinners, Lord. You sanctify believers, Father. So we read your word. Uh, we trust your word, Father. I pray that you can apply the word in our lives, Lord. Help us know you more. Help us serve you better. Help us praise you better. Pray to Saul in Jesus' name. Amen.